Roger, for, uh, for leading us in prayer. And it's good to always hear what's on your hearts as you guys are sharing prayer requests and praise items uh, with us as a family. Uh, we love all of that. Certainly are appreciative that we can do this a little bit more like normal, because this Sunday does feel like normal. Though some of you will have to remind me what normal is like. I've only been pastor at Stony Brook for about six months before COVID hit. Uh, so normal is, is, is not something I'm very experienced at yet, but I'm looking forward to that. It is really good to see faces, though. And, and being up here and, and speaking to you, uh, it, is, it is wonderful to be able to see and recognize faces and see some new faces that I don't recognize yet. And before, if I wanted to, to see faces, I'd always have to look over at Mark Carr, who always seemed to have a coffee in his hand. It's really interesting how he's nursing that thing all Sunday morning, and so that mask never really quite made it all the way up. But, you know, this is good. Now we're, uh, now we're all, all together and on the same page, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, interesting, another interesting uh, topic today. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce and singleness and, and family and lots of fun stuff we're going to cover. And so if you don't know uh, all about me as pastor, my wife Karen and I, we're going to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary on May 19th coming up in just a few months from now. So we're getting close to 15 years, and it's dawning on me that we're not newlyweds anymore. <laughs> I don't know. It's still kind of in the back of my mind. I still feel like we should be, you know, we should still be on that stage. But no, it's been, it's been a minute, and it's been a very good and lovely 15 years. I don't think Karen's in here right now, so I, I guess I can say whatever I want about this at this point. Um, and uh, we've changed a lot, though, over the time. So we have this picture that Karen put up on social media um, against my wishes uh, of... When we were just youth leader, I was just a youth leader in Brandon. We were newly married, and we were in a mall hunt and disguise ourselves. And so we went in the disguise of someone who was a nerd, which isn't a very good disguise for me because that's exactly who I am. Um, but see, marriage has changed me, and apparently it's made my uh, belly expand and my hairline recede. So I don't know what it is about marriage in particular, but it's had that effect over the last 15 years. Marriage changes you. It's a vital and important uh, relationship, but so are all of our family relationships. In fact, marriage and family represent some of the most crucial human relationships we have, and, and no matter what our walk of life is or our experience is in them. So I'd say that your family, no matter what kind of family you have, no matter what background you came from, your family forms you more than any other relationship you have with any human beings in this world. Outside of your relationship with Christ, your family will form you the most for better or for worse, and everywhere in between. So because of this, these relationships then will impact our relationship with God and vice versa. So it may seem a little odd at first blush, that as we're talking about spiritual renewal, why we're talking about these human relationships. But because they're so vital, they tie in so directly to our relationship with God. And if we are to seek spiritual renewal, then these most important family relationships will also be a focus of renewal in our lives. Spiritual renewal it will involve a renewal of marriage and family. And Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 19. And I'm going to read for you the first 15 verses of that chapter. So you can open up your Bibles if you have them with you. You can follow along. Again, I will read the words for you. And so you can just listen along as well. And we're going to see what Jesus teaches, and then we're going to unpack this together. And we're going to do so uh, humbly, and we're going to do so with an open heart and mind. I'm actually going to pick up in verse 3. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Would you pray with me as we invite God to lead us in this time? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we know full well that family is so vital and important. Some of us know that because our relationships are strong and healthy. And other of us, we realize this because our relationships are strained or broken. And no matter where we come from, today, God, I pray that we would encounter these words of Christ with an open mind to see what you have to say to us if there's wounds that you need to heal, if there's a challenge that we need to strive for, if there's just a comfort in knowing that you give us all that we need and you provide for us. Father, whatever the case may be, we ask that your spirit would lead us into your words of truth and that we would be open to receive these words today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to leave this open for myself. So the Pharisees here challenged Jesus. This is something that we've seen as we've read through uh, different parts of the Gospel of Luke and uh, Matthew, any of the Gospels. The religious leaders of the day, when Jesus was gaining their followers, he was upsetting the norm, and he was really calling it to question their authority. And so they fought back in various different ways. And one of the ways that they did this was to test him, not to see if he knew this knowledge, but they wanted to trap him. They wanted him to give an answer that would undermine his authority, maybe erode some of his followers. Uh, They wanted to maybe even get him to say something that was incorrect according to the law so that they could prove that he was not a legitimate teacher and they could remove that authority that he was teaching with. It was a a self-serving type of test. It really was a trap that they wanted to spring on Jesus. And so they tested Christ by, by trying to undermine his authority and turn the crowds against him. And I do think here, as we read in Matthew 19, that they're asking about divorce for a reason. Because if you go back to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already given, in simple form, what his views are or his thoughts are on divorce and on marriage. And so I think it's not a a, a tremendous leap of faith to to believe that the Pharisees knew what Jesus was probably going to say, and they had an idea that they could corner him if he answered in the same way. So they're bringing this forward. It's a leading question. They want to trap him. Uh, In addition to having this type of test, if we were to understand the cultural context of this, we would realize that divorce was being used quite liberally in Judaism at that time. The men were looking for reasons to divorce their wives. They were interested in finding loopholes. And they didn't want to do so to violate the law. And so they they were looking for ways in which they could still, in their minds, adhere to the law and yet also get what they wanted, which in many cases was freedom from the marriage that they found themselves in. 
And so they are, they know that, that this is what a lot of the audience maybe will want to hear. That is the background. People were looking for these loopholes. They wanted to do what suited them. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus would not answer in the way that the crowds would want to hear. And so they are trying to make him look bad. And then they ask this question. They ask the question, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's lawful. So their question is about divorce. But Jesus doesn't give an answer about divorce. He first instead talks about marriage. The Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce, and Jesus says, let's back up. Let's look instead at God's design, his intent, what marriage truly is. Let's understand that before we start to bicker and try to get in all the gray areas of interpretation of what is allowable in divorce. He points to God's original design and says this is all about covenant unity. He, he draws the attention of the Pharisees and, and us as readers away from the worst case scenario and instead puts our eyes on the goal of what we ought to be striving for. And he does so in a way that, that the Pharisees would have to acknowledge. He quotes from the Torah. He quotes from Genesis 2, 24, uh, where, he, where he talks about that the two shall become one flesh. And he, he even uh, He even then adds in a statement, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is now quoting from the Torah and he's still preaching and teaching with this authority and saying God is doing something something amazing. He's accomplishing a miracle in having two people now become one. And one of my favorite parts about all of this is that he uh, even has a bit of a barb in this. He goes to the Pharisees, have you not read? (laughs) These are are a group of men who have memorized the Torah. And Jesus says, haven't you read? In the, in the Torah, right at the beginning, when God shows his design and desire for marriage, why are you skipping over that most fundamental and important part of God's word? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Something that we often hear quoted at weddings. And it speaks to the profound work of God in taking two different people and making them one, which is a miracle and a mystery and a work of God. Of course, it doesn't refer just to a physical union of two people, but something much deeper and more profound. We're talking about a work of God in knitting two people together at the soul level. And so if we want to understand what divorce is and and what might be allowable or not, we need to first understand what marriage is and what deep unity God is working at in marriages. And we need to know that this has always been God's design from the very beginning. He's never changed his mind. He has created us. Jesus reminds us that this is something from the creator. He has put us together. He knows how we work. He knows how we will thrive. And then he has given us this thing called marriage in accordance to his purpose so that this is how we will thrive when we are working uh, out our marriage in the way that God designed us to. It's how it is best. So Jesus says, why do you want to look for divorce? That's not what is best. What is best is to work out, to renew your marriage in the way that God designed it from the beginning. But it's also messy and difficult when two people become one. It gets messy and difficult when that covenant relationship breaks down. And I will say this, that no one knows the design of God for marriage better than those who have experienced the breaking of the two becoming one. Now, I need to do a bit of a disclaimer here. Um, I'm going to talk on divorce, and I know it's a sensitive subject, because I know there are some of you that have walked this road. 
some of you that are walking this road right now, and I don't know what it's like. So I just need to have that out right out of the front. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to it. I'm going to be, uh, as much as I can, put myself in your shoes, but I acknowledge that I can't do that. I truly don't know what it's like. And, and, and so if there's something that I do that misrepresents you, I just ask for grace because, um, because I, I can't know everything about it. Um, it reminds me of one time when I was a youth pastor. I was asked by a group of women to come in and talk about what it means to parent teenagers. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I didn't have any kids. So I, so I entitled my talk, How Moms Should Parent Their Teens by someone who is not a mom or a parent or a woman or a teen. Right? So I just felt utterly unqualified. And yet I had worked with students and I believed I had some resources I could point them to and encourage them to. But I needed to acknowledge at the outset, you know, if you need to, take this with a grain of salt because I'm not where you're at, but I believe I can help you. That's much the same spirit I want to bring to this sermon today. If you have been divorced, if you are, if you're working through it, I'm not where you're at but I believe there are some things that I can point to in the word of God that can help you and encourage you. And that's the spirit that I want to share this morning. So what Jesus does is he does redirect us away from this breaking of this marriage covenant, this breaking of God's initial design. And, and, and he realizes, he, 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 he points to what God's design is because it flies in the face of looking for a loophole. It flies in the, in the face of those who were trying to find any allowable way to get what they want. They were not concerned, the people who asked this question or the people who wanted to hear a specific answer to this question were not concerned about God's desire. They were concerned about how they could get away with something without breaking the law, a loophole. It was ultimately about self-gratifying behavior. And Jesus, if I would paraphrase, would say, do not look for reasons to leave. Instead, look for reasons to stay. Don't be so consumed with this idea. Instead, redirect your eyes to the lofty goal that God has for marriage relationships. And so he says this, and the Pharisees actually get the answer that they are looking for. They believe that they're fishing for. So they ask about that, and then, they says, and then Jesus says, what, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the Pharisees are like, aha, I got him. That is an unpopular answer. That's not an answer that's in line with what we teach from Torah. So then they spring this trap that they set for Jesus. And they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They believe they have caught Jesus. They think they have him in a corner. And as we will soon find out, nothing could be further from the truth. If marriage is so permanent, the Pharisees say, why did Moses command divorce? Now, the passage that they are referring to is in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And this is what God gives to his people through Moses as the law of the old covenant. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house, and so on and so on and so forth. It's outlining not a reason for divorce, but the process of divorce. And it certainly is not a command. This is something that has been allowed the people, but never commanded the people. And Jesus knows this, and he is willing to challenge the Pharisees on their interpretation. They think they've caught him, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus then explains that the reason for this allowance of divorce, again, not a command, but allowance, is not God's original plan, hardness of human hearts. 
He says the only reason divorce is allowed for in the Old Covenant is because broken and sinful human people are involved. And God's original design and his hopes and dreams for marriage are this way, are permanent, do not involve divorce, and do not involve divorce at all. And yet because we are all imperfect and sinful human beings, therefore God has made the allowance for it in the Old Covenant. The type of divorce that is allowed for in the Old Covenant and in the teaching of Jesus is not to look for a reason to break a marriage. It is only to recognize that the other party has already broken that permanent covenant. It is not to take an otherwise healthy or repairable or or a, a situation that could be restored or reconciled. If that's the case, then we know the goal. We know the standard. We know God's call. The divorce that is allowed for in the Old Covenant and in Jesus' teaching is only when the other party has irrevocably broken their side of the covenant and has now made it impossible to reconcile or restore that relationship. And Jesus describes it in this passage as sexual immorality. So what can we do if we are to learn and take something away? What is controllable in our lives? Well, as far as it is up to you, keep the covenant of marriage. As far as it is up to you, seek after restoration. Seek after reconciliation, even when it looks impossible. Never stop fighting for your marriage. That is the call of Christ in our very important marriage relationships. And fighting for your marriage differs from the message that this world gives. I know Karen and I, we've watched a few shows recently in which divorce has been a topic. And there has been uh, really what the, what the shows are saying and displaying, which is in line with what the world says, like, ah, you fell in love with the wrong person. So, you, you know, it's really healthy to, to divorce and then to find the person you truly love. Oh, you're holding this person back because they're not fully committed to this marriage relationship. So you're doing them a favor by letting them go so that they can go and be free and be themselves. Really, there's a, a romanticizing of how it can be even beneficial to divorce and to break this covenant. But if we are to follow the teaching of Christ, then we know that this is going to be different than the teaching of the world. And that we are going to fight harder because we do believe that God has has done something profound in making two people one. And we are going to do whatever we can do to reconcile and restore. But the reality is, the reality is that you can do everything in your power. And if the other person gives up and walks away, and leaves, and breaks that covenant, then there's nothing else that you can do. And that's why there's this allowance for divorce. Not so that's a loophole for you to get out of something, not so you can have the self-gratifying behavior, but that you can recognize those situations in which the covenant has been broken, and the other party isn't willing to do what is necessary to have that restoration and that reconciliation. And if the other person, the other party, the spouse, leaves, then there truly is nothing else that can be done. And so you need to ask yourself when the marriage is tough, is there any way, is there anything else that I can do or could have done? And then when you are at peace with that, then you can lay down at night and sleep well. I still remember um, some marriage advice that my dad and my mom gave me before we got married. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't try to give us all this little advice, but this is one thing that was important. And I saw them live this out in their marriage. They say, when things get tough and you're laying out on a table all the things that you can do to fix this or to to get through this, all the different tools and resources and options, and you have everything on the table, just remember that divorce is never on the table. Divorce is never one of the options. And there is a huge difference in your heart and in your mind of believing divorce is a last option or not an option at all. On the table, but at the very end, or under the table, only when things are broken beyond repair by somebody 
else refusing to continue to seek restoration. And so have that mind set among you. I believe that's in line with what Jesus is talking about here. The promise of marriage needs to be upheld by both parties. And if someone breaks it, there is nothing that you can do to control it. Which is one of the very many reasons, church, why when somebody is part of our family and they have gone through divorce, that there is nothing we gain by championing the cause of marriage, by by treating anyone who has been through divorce differently, by belittling them, by making it seem like, oh, why couldn't you have upheld this lofty standard? No, none of that is helpful. None of that is in line with what Jesus is teaching. We do, we gain nothing by looking down on those who have gone through such a hard and difficult time. No one who has gone through that should feel any lesser. Your identity is in Christ and you are his. So what can we do? Again, Jesus calls us to this positive thing that we are to look for. And so I think we do need to focus on renewing our marriage. And if you are married, then this is for you. We're going to talk about singleness in just a second. So well, something for everyone here. But if we are to renew our marriage, there's two main ways that we do it. One that I would call preventative maintenance and one other that I would call urgent repairs. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, Christian authors uh, about marriage is, is Gary Thomas. And, and he has said before that we need to beware downward drift. That if we just go on autopilot, things don't get better, things will get worse. So if we own a house and you never repair your house, if you just kind of live in it and enjoy it, eventually things are going to fall apart and become in disrepair. Uh, If you want to stay in good shape, but all you ever do is sit on the couch and you don't go out and exercise, eventually you will get out of shape. And if you want to learn how to play the piano and stay good at it, but you never go and practice the piano, eventually you will get worse at piano. This is the downward drift. If we go on autopilot, we're going to drift away. And so we need to be active in repairing our house and going for runs and practicing the piano and renewing our marriages. It is proactive, preventive, preventative maintenance. I, I, I always like to, to say the marriage can be like owning a car. You have to take care of it before it breaks down. So my, my wife and I, we're, we're rolling with the, what is it, 2006 Honda Odyssey right now? Is that it? It's what a sweet vehicle, right? It's, it's got all these, it's all, one of the newest cars I've ever owned. It has all these bells and whistles. And one of, the, one of the features of it is it tells you when you're due for an oil change. So a little while ago, a little, a little thing popped up, bing, and says, service due soon. I'm like, oh, that's good. A little while later, bing, service due now. I'm like, oh, great. Do you want to know what it says today? Service overdue, 275 kilometers. (laughs) So what good is that feature if I ignore it anyway? And if I want my 2006 Honda Odyssey to last longer than I need to do what I ought to have done a few weeks ago and give it an oil change. And having that preventative maintenance is not because it's going to fall apart. It's not because it's a bad vehicle. It's something that I can do to help it run smoothly. We need to think of our marriage relationships in much the same way. So what does preventative maintenance look like? Well, it can look like just enjoying each other and having a good time. Go on regular date nights. Go on on these outings in which you just enjoy being with your spouse. Uh, Maybe even uh, you can find some way to to have someone look after the kids and make it a whole weekend away. So if I want to to really show my wife that I love her, if I want her just to make her feel really excited, then then there's, there's no sweeter phrase than doing something just the two of us, <laughs> especially during COVID. We're at home for so long with the kids and we love our kids, but man, if we can just spend time just the two of us, that matters so much to our relationship. 
And so whether that's just making sure that we're off our phones uh, early in the evening, maybe we can go out on a date or have that weekend away. All of that is preventative maintenance. It helps us just enjoy each other, get to know each other, and continue to share what's going on in our lives. There's also um, so many good resources out there on marriage that you can and should be looking into before you have these issues that pop up. There's a lot of good books. Uh, There's a lot of good Bible studies out there, even on Right Now Media which you all have a free subscription to because we uh, have done that for you as a church. And so you can go on to right now and you can look at what um, studies are available. You can come talk to me or Karen, and we have uh, different books that we've read that we found helpful, and we'd just be happy to point you in the right direction. All these things that can just bring marriage to your mind so that you can, you can work on that. You can have this preventative maintenance. And you can also think about attending a conference or a retreat. A couple years ago, we did something like that here at Stony Brook. Through Right Now Media, we had a marriage night where they had a number of different speakers come, and we invited couples to, to come and to listen to these speakers, and we provided some, some good food, and just, again, to have a bit of this date night, just the two of you, but with this purpose of working on that vital relationship. It doesn't have to be something we just do here. You can go and find these conferences uh, in the city and elsewhere, uh, and then really just allow yourself to, to work on this relationship. And I'd encourage you even to think about uh, going to receive counseling before there's an issue. See, often we think of counseling as something to do only when there's a problem has, ar- has arisen. But, but no, maybe if you and your spouse are willing and you want to go see someone who's a professional and just get them to, to, to give you some good tools for how you can talk things over and work through conflict and communicate well, then you can go and, and, and ask somebody for the, that help before things become a huge issue. But if we're going to keep this analogy going, and we believe marriage is like owning a vehicle. We need to do the preventative maintenance. But no matter how many oil changes you give a vehicle, at some point, something's going to break. Something will go wrong. And you're going to need some repairs, maybe even some urgent repairs. Things will break down even in the best and most healthy marriage relationships. What can you do in those situations? The first thing I would urge you to do is to reach out to someone or a small group of people that you trust. Don't Try to keep this to yourself. Don't try to keep this just between the two of you. Now you can talk to each other about who you're willing to confide in. Make sure it's very, very small circle and it's very confidential. But invite some people into that circle, including your pastor. I would say, you don't have to ask me, but I am here. I am here for you. It doesn't even have to be marriage. Whatever it is, don't try to fix this on your own. Talk to me and I'll just listen. I can maybe give you some helpful advice, but don't wait until it's too late. One of the very hardest things that has been part of my ministry are on those times in which we get a frantic phone call from a husband or a wife, come over to my house, so-and-so is is packing up, they're going to leave. And so we'll get there as a, a group of pastors or one of us pastors, we get there and it is far too late. That person is gone. They're through the door. It's, it's over. And then we realize that they've been having problems for years and we knew nothing about it. And we so wish we could go back in time and just encourage and challenge and walk alongside and, and bring in resources to help it not get to this point. By the time we're there as boots on the ground, it is far, far too late. And we feel so helpless. We want to help as pastors, but, but if, we, if we're not allowed to, we're invited to because people are embarrassed or think they can handle it on their own, then, then we can't be the help that we want to be. An analogy that springs to my mind is it feels like like somebody's house has caught fire. And instead of immediately calling 911, they're like, 
that's not that big of a fire. I'll just, uh, I can just grab some water and I'll throw it on the drapes. And then the fire spreads. And they're like, well, no, it's like, it's still not too far gone. And by the time they call the firefighters, it feels like we're walking into the situation where, where they're asking for help and the house is burned to ash around them. It's far too late. Don't wait to ask someone for help. And then I would also say, be humble enough to seek counseling. Because when your marriage relationship is truly in the rockiest state, those professionals, not just me as a pastor, but those professionals can be a huge help to you and your spouse to work through the most difficult things. Don't worry about what it might look like. Be more committed and convinced of what the goal is for in marriage. And then I would also encourage you, if necessary, in those urgent times, take time apart with the game plan of getting back together. It is okay to give some distance and space with an intentional game plan to get back together. I would also mention that this is incredibly important in any instances where abuse is present. So if you are in a marriage relationship or even or any relationship in which there is, a, is, is physical, sexual, rampant emotional abuse, the first thing you need to do is go someplace safe. You're never going to be able to fix what is broken until you are safe, until you are secure. And so fighting for your marriage doesn't mean enduring abuse. It might mean stepping out of that situation and then prayerfully asking God and others, how can I, how can I do what needs to get done to make sure that, that by the time I go back, abuse will no longer be part of the equation. So don't mishear me there. Take time apart with a game plan of getting back together, especially if any abuse is involved. And why do we go through all of this? Why do we spend so much time and energy on a sermon on a Sunday morning talking about how we should fight for marriage and, and as far as it is up to us to do everything we can to keep this permanent covenant with others? Well, it's because marriage is spiritual renewal because it reflects Christ and the church. It reflects Christ and the church. I have a passage in Ephesians uh, that, that explains it quite well. I can find it here for you. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32 Paul speaks about this and he weaves in his talks about marriage and husband and wife and what it means for Christ in the church. Um, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis, which Jesus quoted as well. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery is profound not just with marriage, but with Christ in the church. That what we, how we live out a marriage actually affects our understanding and our ability to understand and accept how Christ loves us, not just personally, but us together. And so as we walk out our marriage, we also walk out our faith. A healthy marriage helps you understand the relationship between Christ and his church. And so do not let it go lightly. Give it preventative maintenance. Do those urgent repairs. Fight for that covenant of marriage. But marriage is tough and it is not for everyone. <laughs> the disciples can't believe the standard that Jesus just set. He, he talks to the disciples, he challenges everyone who's listening, and then his own followers come away and say, wow, if marriage is that, if it, marriage is that permanent, <laughs> if the goal of marriage is that lofty, then, then it's better not to marry at all. You can really see how Jesus is teaching something countercultural in his context. And Jesus goes on and he says, well, you're right. It's not for everybody. There is also the gift of singleness. He uses the example of eunuchs to teach about singleness and celibacy to renew singleness. And now if you're here, maybe you're a student or a kid, you don't know what a eunuch is, um, go ask your parents at lunchtime. You can go ask them. Um, but it is uh, metaphorical in this sense. And Jesus is talking about those who will not marry, 
those who will remain single, who will remain celibate. And he says some were going to be born uh, as eunuchs. Some will be made by men. Uh, some some are, 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 the circumstances will create this. And some are going to do it by choice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And it's in that phrase that we realize Jesus is, is in many ways referring to himself. And he's referring to others like Paul who will come after him. And he is saying there is a gift in remaining single. And that gift is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So you, you are single here today. I don't want to talk just about marriage. There's something that, that Jesus has in mind for you too. And I want to remind you that singleness is a gift, whether you're single by choice or by necessity. Because there are going to be some who are both. Some saying, I, I love being single. This is the life that I will choose for myself and, and I'm going to enjoy it as much as I can. And others, you would say, I don't really want to be single, but I haven't uh, found anyone that is, is the right partner for me yet. Or others who have gone through that, that, that path of divorce and said, I had a marriage and, and it was broken, and now I, I find myself single. But no matter what circumstance brought you there, that singleness remains a gift. And that's where we as a church, we should never ever glorify marriage over singleness. Yes, we should talk about marriage, and we need to fight for marriage and remind our married couples what the goal of God is in that. But to be married is not any better than to be single. Marriage is a gift from God. Likewise, singleness is a gift from God. Both are good. Both are part of God's design, and both are gifts of a different sort. So yeah, let us highlight marriage and let us and fight for that. Let us renew our marriages, but let's make sure we also renew our singleness. It is a gift from God. And it is a gift in particular that allows devotion, greater devotion to the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus has reminded us, so Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to read verses 32 to 35. And Paul takes this idea of Christ and really expands on it. He says to the church in Corinth, I want you to be free, excuse me, free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, not how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says, it is good to be single. I wish everyone could be like me. He says that just, uh, just earlier than that. This is a gift. It allows you this single-minded minded devotion to Christ. What a gift singleness can be. And we've seen this at work and, 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 and in, the, in, in the life of the church. There's been so many uh, single missionaries who realize that, that because of their status as a single person, they can go anywhere in the world and then do what God has called them to do. And they use that freedom to go and to show devotion to God in that way. There's others. Uh, our church thrives on everybody volunteering. And there are so many single people that volunteer here that use the time that they have to be devoted to the kingdom of God through serving in their church. And we thank you for that. There are others who are single, maybe you're in a stage of life as a young adult where you may not be single forever, but you're single now. And you use this freedom to go to Bible school or a discipleship training program. You can just go wherever you need to go. You can be devoted to the kingdom of God. You can be devoted to Jesus Christ. And not to say married people can't be devoted, but we have other things that we're thinking of. So you can see the reason why singleness can be a gift. And yet it also comes with a danger. 
because it seems hard. It seems difficult. And just as I'm not fully qualified to talk about what it's like to be divorced, I'm not qualified to talk about what it means to live out singleness. But the danger here is this feeling that that intimate relationships, really deep, meaningful relationships might feel harder to come by. But I would say that intimate relationships are still possible for those who are single, and we can call them spiritual friendship. And there is a Uh, a theologian and a teacher that I really appreciate that has done a lot to help give me good perspective on what singleness in the church maybe ought to look like. His name is is, uh, Dr. Wesley Hill. Now, Dr. Wesley Hill is a gay celibate Christian. So he is gay, and that is is the way that that his uh, um, sexual orientation works itself out, but he is not affirming of gay marriage. So he says, I believe that I'm committed to remain celibate. The reason he is not affirming of gay marriage is because he believes, as we've also been been taught here, that marriage uh, reflects uh, our relationship that we have as the church to Jesus Christ. And we don't affect one without affecting the other. And so he says, because of that theological reason, then I'm going to remain celibate. That's the call of God in my life. And then he also realizes, if this is going to be my life, if I'm going to be celibate and single my whole entire life, how do I work this out in the church? And he has written some amazing thoughts on it. I want to say, um, share three quotes with you. Um, and perhaps they'll resonate with you if you are a single person in the church. Wesley Hill said, What I feared most, though, about my decision to remain celibate was that I had thereby doomed myself to lifelong loneliness. He was committed to this path, but he was worried that it would mean lifelong loneliness. But he also has this problem because he says in another quote, without people to love and be loved by, I don't imagine faith is very sustainable. He says, I can't do it on my own. I need other people. I need to love and be loved. And then he says something profound in the third quote I want to share with you. The New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. Read that one more time. The New Testament views the church as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. So we ought not to over-glorify marriage. We need to realize that these intimate personal relationships do not have to always be romantic, that they can exist as spiritual friendship, and they should exist in our relationships together as a church. We are a spiritual family. True friendships are formed here, and connections do not need to be romantic in order to be personal and intimate. And so to renew singleness is to be reminded that this is a gift and to lean into the devotion that it leaves room for in your walk with Christ. But it's also to pursue meaningful spiritual friendships. And church, the job for us to do is to make sure that those who are single and part of our family have the connection that God desires for them, that we offer this friendship to everybody, that we realize that the depth of relationship we're talking about here doesn't have to be romantic but it can and should and does exist, even as, as friendship. So we renew our marriage. We renew our singleness. We also want to renew family, because I didn't know how to say renew children. That seemed a little bit odd. Like there's some sort of like library book or something. Uh, so I put it down as renewing family. And then, but I really want to talk a little bit as we wrap up about what it means uh, for children in the kingdom of God. And really what Jesus says in the last two verses we read together, that children are vital to the kingdom of God. They are not just a distraction to be avoided. The the, the people wanted to bring children to Jesus and the disciples said, no, Jesus is too important for this. He needs to talk to the adults in the room. These kids are are a distraction. They're noise. They're a lot of work. And Jesus says, no, kids are so much more than that. And we need to be reminded of this even 
When we are in the middle of parenting, if you have young kids, you know that there is a lot of work and noise that comes with children, but they are so much more. And I would say that if we are looking as parents on on what we can do to renew our family, we need to clue into the fact that parenting is a vital form of discipleship. It is a vital form. And we want to, on our mission here at Stony Brook, we want to encourage everyone to live as devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And if you are a parent, the main way, the number one way you live out that mission is by teaching your kids about Jesus and modeling what it means to, to seek after him. You are discipling your kids. That is priority number one. I had a good friend back in Stonewall, and we were going through a lot of this evangelism and discipleship training. Uh, but She was working uh, on a farm and didn't come into contact with very many others, and she had kids. And right now she has four daughters at home. And she's like, how in the world do I do all this discipleship stuff? And she was struggling with it until that moment when God spoke very clearly to her and says, you do all of this to your daughters. You disciple them. That is where I've placed you. That's how you live this out. And church, if all of us as parents clued into that, if we realized our, our first priority of discipleship was our children, then the church would become such a, a vibrant place where the spirit is, is being experienced in a great and deep way. And it's not just parents who need to be part of the discipleship process for kids. <laughs> we need those Sunday school teachers to be involved with it. We need aunts and uncles to, to be involved with, with building into these kids and showing them the love of Christ. We need grandparents and, and, and those others who act as grandparents to just love on those kids and to show them the love of Jesus and to say, this is what it looks like to follow after God. Follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can we do that for the youngest part of our spiritual family? But even though as we build into them and we realize their potential, I would say one more thing as we continue, as we, as we wrap up here. I would say that children are the church of today, not just the church of tomorrow. If we only define children by what they will eventually become, we miss out on so, so much. There are things that they have to show us, to teach us, to make us laugh, to make us cry. They are little followers of Christ today, right here, right now. We cannot just boil them down to what they have as potential. My kids have have, have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. They are every bit as, as saved as I am. They are every bit as full of the Spirit as I am. Yeah, they're learning a lot, but they are little followers of Jesus. And our faith grows when we learn from children. This is something that Jesus is aware of. <laughs> We're not just supposed to teach them. They teach us. They teach us. I'm going to invite the music team to come forward and get ready as we uh, as just wrap up this final thought. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, of when my mom got sick. And when we knew she didn't have very much longer to live. And we're all trying to wrap our heads and hearts around that. And then it was Malachi in particular that approached all of it with a childlike faith. And he just says, well, she gets to go to heaven, right? And I'm like, yes. He's like, and then we'll go see her there eventually, right? Yes. And he was done thinking it through. (laughs) And I envied him that. I envied him that, but he also taught me something of those promises and truths that God has given us that we can overthink and, 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 and begin to doubt. And there is this invitation and children remind us of it that, that we need to approach Jesus with a childlike faith, that we need to just trust him, that he is who he said he, was, he, he is, that he did what he said he did. We need to come dependent to the foot of the cross, knowing we can't do this on our own. Childlike faith is dependent. Childlike faith is also hopeful. 
that God has good things in store for us, no matter what we're currently facing. And childlike faith is also content, where we're not so worried about what we do not have, but we can rest in the moments that God has given us together. And that contentment is where we find spiritual renewal in our marriage, in our singleness, with our family, ultimately in Christ. Please pray with me one more time. God, we have covered a lot of ground and I know we have many different stories and paths that we've walked to get here. Different parts of your words are going to resonate with different people here today in our family, but God, we all have relationships that we can fight for. We all have a greater devotion to you that we can seek after. We all have little followers of Jesus that we can help disciple. And as we do that, Father, I know that you will use this childlike faith to give us spiritual renewal that we are seeking and that we are asking.